Well, if you have your Bible this morning, open the proverb. No, 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 no. I'm going to do a little cooking myself this morning. Good job, Josh. You deserve the S on your chest. You really do. I love you, buddy. You are, it, you are a great addition to our church, and I want you to know that. You, you represent all these young guys that just, and gals too, who just are the future of this church. And just, I just love you, and I just appreciate you. You guys got great hearts. You guys got, you love the Lord. You love the book. I, I'm just telling you, thank you all, but thank you today. for That was great. If you have your Bibles today, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 22. Last week, we talked about verse 7 and 8, and we looked at two really good solid principles for, for just everyday living. Uh, you know, we saw the world system becoming the master of our lives instead of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Uh, we saw uh, in the verses, we talked about how that the, in the world scenario that the rich is always over the poor, that the borrower is servant to the lender. We talked about the concept and the idea of Galatians 6, 7, how that you sow iniquity, but you reap vanity, and how it will lead to an empty life. And I took you over there and showed you the uh, concept of uh, end of your life, a bag with, with holes. Everything you put in it, you've lost. We wound up by talking about the rod of a man's anger failing him and told you how that people will control people, who are very angry people, and That'll always fail. It'll never work. These are common things that uh, you'll have to deal with and face uh, every day of your life. You're going to find these things. Proverbs gives you the insight to see and understand and to deal with all of those things that are going to come your way in life. Uh, You know, God gave us a common Bible to the common man to be able to solve our common problems. And it's just that simple. And today I want to look at just one verse. Uh, I want to just, but my, my, what a verse it is. And I want to talk to you about, I think, one of the greatest principles anywhere in the Bible for uh, your future as a Christian. And hopefully uh, come away today with some great truths uh, from this great verse. And this verse is really, I know it's only one verse, but I'm going to tell you right now, this verse is worthy of our time today to look at it and to take it apart. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9 says this. It says, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. Aaron, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on our service this morning, please? Thank you. Now let's look at the first part of this uh, verse, verse 9. And there's two parts here I want to look at. And uh, we're going to take some time today. And, and what I want to talk about is the blessings of God in your life and my life through a bountiful eye. What does that mean? You know, we read a verse like that and, and we say, boy, that's a great verse. But inside we're saying, I wonder what it really means. And I want to walk you through it today. And I, I, I want to talk about he that hath a bountiful eye 
uh, shall be blessed. Now, Thursday night, we talked about, we talked about how important that the words are in the Bible. Somebody asked a question out of John chapter 21, verse 25, and uh, I, I talked about where that verse says, and there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And I told you how that, in a personal way, that verse really changed my life. I was like most of God's people when it came to the Bible. I knew it was God's Word. I knew it was special. I knew it was wonderful. I knew it was truth. But I never looked at it as the fact, as that in light of that verse there in verse 25 of John chapter 21, that of all the things that Jesus did, He handpicked what He wanted me to have. When I understood that, my whole life and viewpoint of the Word of God was never the same again. And uh, where before I was reading through the Bible many times and, uh, and just gleaning everything I could by reading it as quickly as I could to get through it, now I realized that every word was important. And that ended my attempt to get through the Bible quickly. And I, when, I, when I preach to you the book of Proverbs here, the reason why it has taken us so long <coughs> is the fact that we have done it, uh, looked at every word, because words are important. And of course, when God wrote the Bible, he put it in a format that the really the key to unlocking the Bible will simply be the words. And this is why all the new translations come out. The devil wants to destroy your ability to ever really get into a depth of the Bible. So what they always tell you, it ain't no big deal. We just change some words. I'll give you an example. The, the latest monstrosity that came out in 1975 that everybody uh, who wants to replace the King James Bible, the good old King James Bible, and they want to replace it with, uh, and yet they want to appear to be still okay. They won't go to an NIV or one of those. They'll go to the new King James Bible. And many churches today uh, will tell you that, well, yeah, we use the King James. No, they use the new King James Bible. And the new King James Bible, they didn't, they didn't destroy the text as like they did in the other, but what they did do was destroy the key words. The devil doesn't care if he destroys the doctrines or he destroys the words, as long as he keeps you from getting the Bible. I, I remember reading and looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where in my Bible, the Bible says, the Spirit of God, uh, Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, most people don't understand the importance of that a little verse there. But that verse says that uh, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. What you got in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is the greatest fundamental single application of truth that impacts everything in the Bible that the Holy Spirit of God starts moving in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and it never stops moving throughout your Bible. I could take you this morning into the Word of God and take you down through history I can show you the movement of the Holy Spirit of God from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. It never stopped after Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I can tell you the direction it went. I can tell you the countries that it went to. I can show you the revivals that uh, were about because of that. That one single word in the beginning of verse 2 of your Bible, the Spirit of God moved, taking the word moved. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. He never stops. You get into a new King James Bible, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, you might think that that doesn't, not a big deal. I'm sure there's God's people listening to my voice and maybe one or two of you in this room. 
who would say, well, I don't see the big deal that. Well, the deal is that moving and hovering are two different things. The Spirit of God didn't hover. You know that's where God's people are at in most churches today? You're standing there and the Spirit of God is just hovering over you, but it ain't going anywhere with you. And, and one little word like that, one little change of one little word, destroys the whole concept of what God wants to do in the Bible. You know why you don't know where God is at today? You don't know why you know why you don't know where God has been. And if you don't know where God has been and you know where God is going, you don't know where you're at today. You know why that is? Because you failed to see when he moved and then where he went. He filed a flight plan in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit of God did. And you're a child of God this morning, you ought to know that flight plan. Some words are clearly defined in the Bible and they stand for things to teach us something. Words like, Standing and state. Two little words. Standing and state. Standing will be defined for you in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. State will be defined for you in, uh, oh, excuse me, a state will be defined for you in Philippians 4, 11. And, and standing in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. They're two incredible words. When you read them, you just look at them. Uh, you know, standing. Uh, and, and we're standing and, and state. We just look at it and we think they're two of the most impacting words in the Bible. You take the word no or to know. One of the most powerful words in the Word of God. When you go over to the book of 1 John, you'll find in that book five little chapters, you'll find the word 27 times to know something. The whole book's wrapped around that one word. We saw the words when we came through our child training classes to train and to teach. We know what they mean now. You train uh, them in the truth, but you teach them by example. Ears in the Bible are a great study. He that hath ears, let him hear. Hands in the Bible. Hands in the Bible, wherever you find it, will always represent the work of God. Psalm 40, verse 17 says, The work of our hands will establish the Word of God. Your feet. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 15. That's your walk with God. Your loins. The Bible says that in season 6, 14, we're to have our loins girt about with truth. That's the strength of a man. Yet the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, that we're to gird up the loins of our minds. Credible words. And there will be key words in the Bible that when you find them in a verse, they will tell you, take you to a higher level. They'll begin to unravel the verse and you'll get understand and they'll show you what the verse is talking about by showing you the context by the definition how the Bible uses the word. And of course it's obvious now that when you take a Bible and change those words you lose all of that. Now that's the idea of a real biblical word study. Now you take the word I like I the eye spiritually in the Bible will always represent what we can see that only God sees, but you can see it too. It's like Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. The vision is being able to see what God sees. Now, the Bible says in Matthew chapter, I'm going to tell you today, coming through here, you're going to get a lot of, you, I, I want you to understand how that every one of you need to have a bountiful eye. What that means. 
Because it's already told us that the blessings of God are in the bond of life. Do you all want the blessings of God in your life? Amen. Half of you. Do you all want the blessings of God in your life? Amen. And you've got to get a bountiful eye. You better listen. Better listen. And we're going to learn some things about Christianity today. Because there's a lot of phony Christianity going on out there. Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the light of the body is in the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. If thy eye be single, singleness of mind, you're focused on the things of God. You have a single, fo- notice it doesn't say the light of the body is the eyes. It says the light of the body is the eye. It's focused. It's single. It's singleness of mind for the things of God because of singleness of what I see through the light of God. Seeing everything in life from a single perspective, the Word of God through the light that He has given you. Bible says in Psalms 119 verse 130 that the entrance of thy word giveth light. Now the next verse in Matthew 6, 23 says this, and it's the great contrast to verse, to verse 22. But if thy eye be evil, that's what you're looking at. Thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Now, now get the principle here. Here's what he said. And I know this is not popular today. This kind of preaching is not popular in the world of Christianity we live in. But what he's saying is this. You can't have light and darkness in your eyes at the same time. It isn't one eye's light and one eye's dark. But that's the Christian world we live in. I'm not really out of fellowship with God. I'm not. I can do all things for God, but I can have terrible things in my life. And I'm okay because I say I'm okay. The Bible tells you clearly that you either have a singleness of your eye, which is light, or you have darkness. First John chapter 1 verse 5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. I'm sorry. The eye, biblically speaking, will represent what we as God's people can see on the same level that God is through the light of God's Word. Physically, just to put it into a context for you, physically, it's you looking at every situation in life that you have to face. Spiritually, it's looking at that situation in a physical way, but understanding it in a spiritual way of what you're really up against. Rule number one, spiritual, the spiritual condition of a man will always be determined by the light or the darkness that he has fixed his eye on. And you can't have one eye on God and one eye on the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. You know, back in Genesis chapter 3, the first time you find sin showing up with a human being. First time the devil shows up, Uh, back there in Genesis chapter 3, is the first attack that he puts on God's creation. And the first attack, by the way, that he wanted to attack when he wanted to destroy man and God's creation was to simply take the word from her. The Bible says in Genesis 3, 6, And when the woman saw that the tree 
was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, he also did eat. You see, sin will always start with the eyes. It always will. It'll start with your eyes and it'll move in. I mean, I don't know if you know it or not, but your ears and your eyes and your nose and your mouth are all windows to your spirit. When you, when you look at things that are unholy and not of God, then your, your eyes go dark. And your singleness now is not on the light of God, but on the light of the world. When you listen to things that you shouldn't listen to, it affects your spirit. When you breathe in things that you shouldn't breathe in, it affects your spirit. When you digest things and drink things that you shouldn't drink, it'll affect your spirit. And we actually believe that we can do all of the things that the world does, that an unshaved man does every day in his life, and we can do it as a Christian, and we actually think, we actually think we're okay with God. And we have some message from God. It's not half light and half darkness. It's one or the other. And as a Christian, having the ability to have spiritual insight, Spiritual discernment. Kenzie McClanahan, Kim McClenzie and Jared. What? Is that not his name? Jared and Kenzie? And it's McClanahan, is that right? I don't know what your problem is today. I talked last week and I said, remember I said about, uh, I said that, uh, I saw that coming along before it ever got here. We ever a problem? Remember, I said that, and you came up to me and you said, "How do you get to do that?" Remember, you asked me that question, and that's a great question. Her question was, uh, you know, I made a reference to something that that uh, happened, and I said, you know what? It's not a surprise to me. I saw it coming along before it happened. And she came up and she says, "How do you do that? How do you do that?" Well, you put a GPS on her car, you bug their bedroom, and no, no. But write those things down. We're going to use them a little bit later. And, I, and, I, and that's a great question. It's a, she asked me. And you know, look at over at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Hey, honey, here's how you get to that point. And you are fast on your way to getting to that point. Now, Jared's getting a little nervous now because he's afraid you're going to be. And I want to say, you two are two of the finest kids we've ever had in our church. And I love you very, very, very much. And I am so glad that you are here. I really am. And I love you so much. Now look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12, 13, and 14. It says, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, he says in the next verse, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now right there is, is most of Christianity. An inability to use the word of God. I didn't say that they didn't think they were spiritual. I'm saying the real, the real factor in your life and my life is what can you do with that book? Don't tell me what you believe about it. Don't tell me about all of the attributes of being saved. What do you know and do with what you do know in that book? And he says, if somebody is unskillful in the word, that he's a baby. 
Kenzie, the key in starting out of getting to the point where you can see things like that, strong meat. Getting the principles down in the Bible. That's the beginning. Strong meat. That's Bible doctrine. He says the second thing is, as I said, it's not a baby Christian. It's someone that is mature. Someone that has done some things with the Word of God. Somebody that the Word of God has done some things with them. Now the real key down here is verse 14. Strong meat. Bible doctrine. Spiritual discernment. The ability to see things coming before it gets here. The high tower concept we talked about. But strong meat, Bible doctrine, belongeth to them that are full of age, even those by reason uh, of use. The discernment in your life and my life comes by you taking what you have here and then letting God use it in your life. You work with people. You disciple people. You, you begin to take the Word of God and it, you put it inside and it does something. And it teaches, you the, it teaches you the patterns. It teaches you human nature. It teaches you how after a while there's, all many, there's only so many ways you can get hosed in the ministry. There's only so many ways a person can deceive you. There's only so many ways that somebody can do so. And when you learn those patterns, they're, they're telltale patterns. You guys are like the deer hunt. The guys that really get a deer, the guys that go out long before deer season. You know what you do? You look where they're rubbing their antlers on the trees. And you're saying, oh, they're rubbing their antlers. This is, this is the way. You look for those game trails. Years ago when I, I wanted to hunt turkeys, and I, I, a turkey was the hardest thing in the world. And I practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced hunting turkeys. And I, everybody, I listened to every video, every demonstration, every I did, who was a good turkey hunter. They'd tell you to do this and tell you to do that. And they said, you got to find out where they're at. You can be the fairest turkey hunter in the world, but if there ain't no turkeys there, you're wasting your time. I always got my turkey. hy V always had them, always phrased up, just grab one and go home. And they said, you know what? You look for, look for scratchings. Because turkeys will go through the woods in little groups and they want to eat acorns or something, so they scratch the leaves and put a little circle of scratching. So they say, when you start seeing those, then he says, then you, you know, but he says, you got to be careful. He says, but squirrels do the same thing and so do other birds. So I'm thinking, well, how do you do that? He says, well, you got to look real close. So you get down and you start pulling around, and sure enough, in one of them, you'll find a feather that belonged to a turkey. So there you are. He says, you need to know the difference because of the different seasons. You need to know the difference in turkey droppings. Whether a male turkey dropping will be different than a female turkey dropping. And I'm thinking, oh, please don't tell me the way you know the difference is by tasting them. That's not got, got to, it's the shape of them. In other words, when you want to get something in the woods and hunt and you want to get something, you've got to learn their habits. You've got to be smarter than a turkey. <laughs> You've got to be smarter than the deer. You always get in a deer stand. You don't hunt on the ground. And obviously the reason for his dimension. But you know why? Because deer, animals, they never look up. They look around. They never look up. That's being smarter than they are. You never saw a deer that... They don't look up. They look around. They smell. And when you smell, they'll know you're there. But they, but they, but they, they don't ever look up. You've you got to be smarter, and you've got to understand. And when it deals with people, you've got to be smarter than they are. 
You got to understand the patterns. You let the principles dictate you the patterns by which human nature is going to flow. It never changes. You become a, a profiler, being able to see and understand by the pattern of things to do. And there's, a, there's 30 of them in the Bible. If you just took those 30 and just committed them to memory and every situation you found yourself in, if you use it as a spiritual checklist, you never get messed up. You know why some of you gals got a bozo for a husband? You know why some of you guys, one or two of you, maybe got a bozo for a wife? I put the emphasis on the guys because you didn't follow the pattern. He said he was a Christian when he wasn't. You should have saw the telltale signs that he's got light in one eye and darkness in the other. You can't have a Bible in one hand and a marijuana cigarette in the other. Hello? Patterns. Watching the pattern. It gives you the spiritual discernment. And that's what he says. Using what God gives you. The people ministry. That's what we did. And wow, did we have a time yesterday. That Jeremiah 18 thing is unbelievable. The patterns, the issues, the cause and the effect. It will give you the ability to see the discernment. That's what he says. But strong meat belongeth to them who are full of age, who by reason of youth have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's how you get it. And you're right on track. Right on track. Right on track. You know what to look for, and then you have understanding when you find it. And the greatest aspect of, of what we do here to try to get you ready to work with people is to train you in what to look for. Now, with that being said, let's look at our eye in Proverbs 22.9. It's a bountiful eye. And the blessings of God in your life and my life are connected to this Bountiful eye. So you probably want to pick one up on the way out. We got them in the bookstore. It says, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed. Now, using our, our Bible as their final authority, not the new one, uh, let's get moving here. We, want to, we don't want to hover here. We want to move. Let's see how the Bible uses the word bountiful. That's a key word, and we're going to learn some things. First of all, we would look, and you don't have to turn to these, I'll just read them. But first of all, we would look at Psalms 13, verse 6, which says, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Psalms 116, verse 7 says, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. Psalms 119, verse 17, Deal bountifully with thy servant that, that I, may, uh, I may live and keep thy word. Psalms 142, verse 7 says, Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Now, in the Bible, you're going to find, when you find the word bountiful or bountifully, you're going to find that it will always be in context of all that God has done for us and all that he has given us. Now, when it talks about the blessings of God in our lives, it's talking about those blessings coming from a bountiful eye. What does that mean? It's saying that do you look at life and everything in your life from the bountiful blessings of God that He has given you? When you stop and look at life, how do you see it? How do you see your life with God this morning? Do you see it because of what you don't have? Do you see it because of your nose has been on a joint? Do you see it through the sin in your life? 
trying to balance out a light and a dark eye instead of just being signaled with light? How do you see it? It's saying that when you look at life and everything in it, how do you view it? Do you view it all through all of the blessings that God bountifully has done in your life? Or do you just see it what you don't have or the screwed up life that you're in? And when you really see it and understand it based on God's bountifulness to us, we then find the real blessings of God is giving of that bountifulness that God has given us to somebody else. We see what God saved us from, but we also see what God saved us for. Look at the last part of verse 9. For he giveth of his bread to the poor. There it is. That bread is a type of the word of God this morning. That God has bountifully given each one of you. I don't care what level spiritually you're on. God has given, I don't care if you're just getting discipled. I don't care if you're just getting plugged in. I don't care if you've been here for 20 years. I don't care how long you've been in. Whatever level you're on, God has dealt bountifully with you. And I'll give you just one way. We all should be in hell this morning. Amen. That's pretty good, isn't it? Amen. That gets you through. Now, he said, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. Ah, there's a couple of places I'm going to stop this morning and clear off a little spot. This is one of them. Note the personal application. Not just give bread to the poor. Well, we could just read that and move right on, couldn't we? It's not just give bread to the poor. It's give of his bread. What you got. Not in a generalized, sanitized sense that I'm just going to give the Word of God out. It says the bread that you got, His bread, your bread, my bread, to the poor. One-on-one. Taking the bountifulness of what God has given us. Seeing how He has blessed our lives. And then do what with it? Keep it to ourselves? It's no wonder God's people are the most miserable people on the planet. It's no wonder that they never understand and get to anywhere with God. They just, if you would just stop and look at the bountifulness in your life that He has given us. Now, I've said it many times, and you want a real blessing? You want a real blessing? Just start giving people the Word of God. Just start taking the Word of God and sit down with somebody and give them the Bible. Just start with discipling somebody. Start infusing your life into the life of somebody else. I want to tell you. Absolutely want to tell you. I cannot even begin to put it into words. The prayer concept that we have put together and Bob does such a phenomenal job on and putting all that work together. I know it's a lot of work, Bob, but you do a great job with it. And it's designed for so many multi-things. I know, many of God's people can only see one tunnel vision thing. But it's designed for multi-purpose. And I watched this last time as I stood up here and asked for the groups to come. And all you young guys, all you young girls that have never taken anything or never really taken a step out, you come up and took prayer groups. There was over 120 people in our prayer groups up there this morning. 
And it's all because it, you, you, you just went up to another level. You now are in the place of the greatest blessings and the bountifulness of God is going to pour out all over you because now you're doing what the proverb says. You, I know you guys. You're giving back to God now in that because of what God has done for you. I know you guys, especially you young ones. I know where you've come from. I know the struggles you had. And I know you found a place now where you found everything you could ever want in life from God. And you appreciate what God has done. Some of you got saved here. Some of you found the right Bible here. Some of you just really, and God began to do great things in your life. And now, because of the bountifulness in your eye, you see it. You want to take of your bread and give it to the poor. And let me say that this church is filled with men and women who do just that. And you do it because you look back and you understand all the blessings that God has put in your life. You look at your kids. You look at your marriage. You look at your own life in the Word of God. You look where God has brought you from. You stop and think, where, where, where would any of us be today if it wasn't for God and His book? Where would we be? Now, the example of this in the Bible will be in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And as an example of what I'm talking about is the bountiful blessings of God when you start to give to God what you have. And it's the story of the widow of Zarephath. And the prophet of God here is Elisha. He's now taken over from Elijah. And he goes to this woman, and you know the story. He goes to this woman, and he asks for some help, and, and she says to him, uh, verse 12, and she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat and die. That's pretty destitute. Talk about the last meal concept. Here it is. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, and go and do as thou, uh, as thou hast said, but make me therefore a little cake first. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Elijah's the man of God. This woman doesn't have anything. She's almost down to nothing. She meets the man of God. He says, Hey, can I have something to eat? I'm hungry and I'm doing God's work. She says, You know what? I would, but I can't. She says, she says, you know what, I, 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 I'm on my way to get two sticks to build a little fire. I got a little meal and a little oil, and I'm going to make a cake for me and my boy, and then we're going to die. That's a good outlook on life. He says, you don't have to die. If you just get some priorities in your life and make God's man, God, the cake, First, you know, there's some things you've got to do first in your life before the blessings of God will come your way. And so she does. She does. She, she goes and makes it. She gives it to him. And Elijah said unto her, fear not. Verse 14. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal, which only had a little handful in it. The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall thy cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth the rain upon the earth. And she went in and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. 
and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. She gives what she had to God. She took of her own personal stuff. That's all she had. And she gave it to God first. And then a multitude of blessings came down, and she had enough in that barrel. She had enough oil to go on forever. And I don't need to tell you what that's a picture of, because the oil's a type of the Holy Spirit of God, and the meal's a type of the Word of God. And I'll tell you this. When you give of what you got to God first, the oil in your life, the Holy Spirit of God, and the meal, the Word of God, will be limitless. That's better than bottomless fries at Red Robin, man. It never ends. It's just always there. You got the bountiful blessings of God. Why? Because she saw what God needed and put herself over here and gave the last of what she had. And God said, you know what? She saw an opportunity to give what she had to someone in need and the blessing just kept coming. You know what that is? That's a bountiful eye. What do you see? What do you see with the people around you? Let me ask you something. Do you really see how much God has given to you? Do you really? I mean, I know. We go to church. We go to Bible study. You got the right Bible. We say all the right things. Do you and I really see and understand how much God has given us? Don't answer. If you do, and you see it, why don't you have that bountiful eye to give it to others? Why do we want to keep it all for ourselves? Now, that bountiful eye concept will move it through here. We don't want to hover this morning. We want to move. Now, that bountiful eye concept will be more than just you seeing and understanding what God has for you to do. A bountiful eye for a Christian will be the Christian who can actually see the opportunities that are all around him or her that God puts in our life to give to the poor. Because our eye is single. It's full of light. It's full of God's Word. And he will always, the man of God or the woman, will always pay attention to every opportunity that God has for them. And the verse says, For he giveth of his bread to the poor. You know, bread is a staple in life. And we talk about the fact that, uh, you know, uh, oh, this job, my bread and butter. It means it's your staple in life. We look at the Midwest across the United States and we say, the Midwest is the breadbasket of America. Because we do grain, but it means bread. It's a staple. In prison, when you get into trouble, they'll put you in a solitary confinement and they'll give you two staples to live on, bread and water. Now, I always thought that was pretty interesting because bread and water are a type of the Word of God. And as a Christian like Paul who said in Philippians chapter 1, 1 and 1, 9 that he was a prisoner of the Lord? We are prisoners of the Lord. We have lost our rights. And from a worldly standpoint, from a Bible standpoint, we're in solitary confinement. God has taken and sanctified us from the world, given us a signal of eye and separated us from the world. And our only staple to get us through is the bread and the water that God gives us. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3, Paul talks about getting an opportunity to give out the gospel. He calls it a door of utterance. Now, here's another really key word for you. Doors in the Bible, and there's a number of places. Doors in the Bible will always represent an opportunity. 
Philippians chapter 4, 3, he said, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. He's a prisoner. And you want to get a good study sometime of what I'm talking about? Study Paul's prison epistle. See how he changes his delivery once he's in, in bonds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Doors in the Bible will represent opportunities. A door of utterance to get a chance to say something. Do you see those doors around you? Do you see the doors and opportunities all around you? Is your eye focused through the blessings of God in your life and all the bounty that He's given you that you see the bountiful opportunities that are out there? Do you see them through the bounty that God has given you? In Revelation 3.8, there's a door that is opened and it's a great Philadelphian church age. And it shows us that the doors are opened or closed because a little bit later on, uh, it's, it's closed in Revelation 3.20. And the door gets opened one place and closed in another based on what somebody thinks about the very Bible that you have in your hand. Doors are opportunities. And when a man has a bountiful eye, he sees everything through the blessings that God has given him. And he gives his bread to the poor because he's looking for the blessings of an open door. A door of utterance. And he never misses the opportunity because God in the book or his singleness of his eye, a bountiful eye. Hey, I know God's people. They'll fall into two categories. Some of God's people will never miss an opportunity to do exactly that. And then there's some of God's people who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Now, and within the Bible, there are some really good examples of this, and I, I want to look at just a couple. I want to illustrate what I'm saying by actually showing you at work. Having the ability to see and recognize the opportunities that God puts in our paths and to carry His Word, our bread, to the poor through a bountiful eye. Having the spiritual discernment and the spiritual insight to see it and understand it. Back in the Old Testament, you have one of the greatest examples of this principle. It's found in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, you know the story of Nehemiah. The nation of Israel has been into captivity now for uh, almost 70 years. And uh, God, is, uh, God is ready to do some things. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God is beginning to move to uh, bring Israel back to the land. They're in captivity. And uh, uh, right before the nation of Israel is one of the greatest opportunities, one of the greatest opportunities to, uh, to have a great blessing in their life to go back to the land. And God needs them to go back to the land because just 400 short years from now, the first coming of Christ is going to transpire and no Jews have to be back in the land. But they're in captivity. They're being held by a foreign power. They don't have the freedom to go do anything anymore. They're trapped in the confines of this Gentile nation. Artaxerxes the king. They're, they're trapped in this Gentile nation. But they can't do anything. But standing before them is one of the greatest opportunities to get back to the land to set the stage for the Messiah that's going to come shortly, the first coming of Christ. And God does an incredible thing. But God could not do this incredible thing if he didn't have a man 
who was looking for an incredible opportunity for God to use him. Now, I want to stop here and say this. God wants to do some incredible things with you, but the problem is not God, the problem is you. God wants to do some absolute, this is one of the most unbelievable miracles in the history of the world, and God wanted to do it, and he found one man, and I'm telling you, don't you ever think that your life given to God in the signals of I and doing what's right, God couldn't use to change this world. Problem is not God. The problem is we don't see the opportunities. Or if we do see them, we don't want them. I'll let you choose which one that is. God does an incredible great feat through just one man who sees the opportunity that God has given him an open door of utterance. I have a message I preach on this, and I'm not going to preach it today, but it's simply goes like this. The title is, The Right Man in the Right Place at the Right Time. That's what the bountiful eye does for you. That's what the singleness of eye, that's what making sure the light that is in you is God's Word. It gives you the ability to be the right man in the right place at the right time. And most of God's people are not part of God's plan. Uh, They're rather involuntarily, they're in opposition to God's plan. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, that Nehemiah is the king cupbearer. He's a slave. He's a servant. But God orchestrated circumstances to put him right in the throne room with the king and brought him into favor with the king, much like he did Daniel. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, it says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to be a prayer of thy servant who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy, this servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king cupbearer. You know what he's asking? He's asking God to give him an opportunity before the very king. He's the king cupbearer. He's a nobody. But God orchestrated the events to put him in proximity of the king, and then pray to prayer, God, use me! Now, what has happened is this. Nehemiah has gotten a report. And the report is a devastating report on the condition of, the, of, the, of Jerusalem, the city of God, and the nation of Israel in particular. It lays waste. When, when they came down in 606 B.C., they destroyed it. They absolutely destroyed it. And he reads this despairing letter. And it's to the point where he is, he is so moved with brokenness because he knows that's God's city. He knows what it once was and what God wants it to be. And he's got a burden. But he's not just going to cry in his beer and say, oh, woe is me. No, no. He's got the bountiful eye. And he says, God, I'm in the king's chamber. I'm his cupbearer. Give me an opportunity. So he's sitting there after reading that report, standing there, the king comes in. King's all happy, good mood. He sees Nehemiah, brings his cup over, and he says, sees Nehemiah all distraught and, 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 and looks worried and, and all depressed. And he says, Nehemiah, what's, what, what's wrong with you? You're always so happy. You're my, you're my sunshine. When I come in in the morning, you're always there, such a pleasant. What's wrong, Nehemiah? Nehemiah tells him the story. God just gave him a door utterance. 
He didn't go up to the king and said, hey, king, you need to do this. Uh Uh-uh. He was patient, and God opened a door for the king to ask him what was wrong. Don't you remember that Bible verse over there in Peter where it says, be ready to answer any man who asks you for the reason of the hope within you? Nehemiah looks up and he says, thank you, Lord. What's wrong, my king? I'm a Jew, and I just got a report that Jerusalem is just terribly destroyed and messed up. And my God and what I believe, that's his city. And I, I, I'm just really despondent today because I, I know what it means to God and I know what it means to my people. And you know what, King? I, I, I've been, I, I know I'm a captive, but you've been good to me and I've tried to be the best servant I can be. And he goes on and on and on. Now, I don't know what he said, but he said something like that. Because you know what? The king had done. He said, the king looked at him and says, don't be upset. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass a decree and we'll send some people back and we'll get God's city cleaned up for you. How'd that be? He took the opportunity. He saw through the bountiful eye that what God had done for him, an opportunity to give God back what he wanted. Don't you know that's what our Christian life really is? It's recognize what God has done for me and then me trying to figure out what God wants so I can do something nice for him. And some of God's people have an issue with that. One man who sees the opportunity to tell the story of God. God gets his city back, and we're all set for the first coming of Christ. You know what it is? Right man, in the right place, at the right time. Nehemiah had a bountiful eye. He sees what God sees, and he knows what God wants, and he wants to give it back to God because of how good God has been to him. Is that me? Is that you? I mean, come on, what good is it that God puts you in the right place in the right time if you can't see what God is doing with you? It's worthless. It takes the right man, somebody who has the bountiful eye. Now, another great example of this will be in the New Testament. And this will be found in Acts chapter 8. And this will be a story of You know the story, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, in Nehemiah, we see God putting you in the right place. And that's why I used that, because I wanted you to see that he had a bountiful eye, and because of that bountiful eye, God God put him in the right place. Now, in the book of Acts, I want to show you a similar situation, but I want to show you how, how, how God gets you to the right place. Two incredible keys to a bountiful eye. Yeah, God will get you there, but now I want to show you how he's going to get you there or how you're going to get there. And I've told you many times, Acts chapter 8 is one of the greatest places in the Bible to see that God will have a prepared sinner, the Ethiopian eunuch, and a prepared servant, Philip. Right now, as we're sitting here in this, and yesterday, Thursday night Bible study, and everything we do, if you're saved, you know what God's trying to do? He's trying to prepare you as his servant. You know why? Because all across this city, maybe all across this country, he's preparing a sinner. And what he wants to do is take you, the right man in the right place at the right time, and put you with that prepared sinner, like here. The problem is this. God has more prepared sinners than he's got prepared servants. 
Now, a great revival had just taken place in Samaria. God is on the move. And over in Gaza, an Ethiopian eunuch is in his chariot. He goes along and he pulls into a quick trip. And he gets a big slushy and he's sitting there reading a portion of Scripture that to this day nobody knows who gave him that portion of Scripture. But the portion of Scripture that he had is Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is all about Christ dying on the cross and shedding his precious blood for your sins and my sins. So he's reading about Jesus dying on the cross. He obviously doesn't understand it. In fact, he doesn't even know who Jesus is from the story. But God has a prepared sinner. Now what God needs is a prepared servant. And way over in Samaria, where a revival has broken out, the head evangelist, and Philip is an evangelist, the head evangelist is sitting in there after a great revival service and people are getting saved all over the place. And the Lord says to him, Philip, as is Acts 28, 8, verse 26, Philip, arise and go to Gaza. He didn't tell him what he was going to do, didn't tell him why. I've always marveled at this story because, it, it, you know, if that would be most of us, we'd be arguing with God that we can't leave now because all these people are getting saved and we are the key evangelist. He never said that. He just goes. And he does. He, he leaves right away. He's gone. He left the great revival over here in Samaria where hundreds and hundreds of people were getting saved for one Ethiopian eunuch on the backside of the desert who needed Christ. And the reason why he did that is because he's having direct communication with the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 29 says, when he finally gets there, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this man's chariot. And the Bible says that when the Spirit of God says that to him, he runs. Now I got to stop here and clear off a little spot for you again. Is there anything wrong in what I just read between uh, verses 8 uh, 26, and when God comes down and tells Philip to go do this, and Philip goes to do it, and and uh, it's all just, uh, I mean, it's, uh, but, for all you great spiritual gurus out there, there's something missing here. And I want to help you clear it up this morning. He's over there having a great revival, having a great time. God comes down through the Spirit of God and says, go to Gaza, which is desert. Doesn't tell him why. He doesn't argue. He gets up and goes. And when he gets there, he runs to the guy. But you know what he fails to do in all this thing? He doesn't pray about it. He didn't pray about it. Now, if that was you and me, and I was here, and, and God said, Bob, I want you to go to Tanzania, and there's somebody over there that I want you to just go to Tanzania. Well, I'd be calling everybody together. We'd be down on our knees, and we'd be trying to make sure that's what God wants us to do. Now, I'm going to make a point. Philip had a bountiful eye. 
He's a classic example of 2 Thessalonians 5.17, which says that you and I are to pray without ceasing. When you have a direct relationship with the Holy Spirit, now listen very carefully, because some of you are going to hear this wrong. When you have a complete, close, working relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, where you are talking through Him daily throughout the day, there ain't a whole lot in life you've got to pray about. He tells you what to do, you do it. When you're dialed into the Holy Spirit of God, and you're on the move with God, and you're talking with Him minute by minute, as Philip was, you don't see Philip calling a conjectural prayer meeting where everybody comes in, and let's really decide if this is what God wants. Uh-uh. He didn't need that. You know why? Because he had direct access to the Holy Spirit of God as you do. And when you pray without ceasing and have that direct connection with the Holy Spirit of God, there are a lot of things you don't need to pray about. You just do it. And he just did it. You know, I, years ago, I used to... When I was trying to figure it all out myself, I, I read these stories about John Bunyan, George Whitfield, all these guys that were, tra- you know, all these guys that were traveling preachers. And they would tell in their stories on how they were great men of God, great preachers, great men of faith, and they were. And it would always say, I remember one time, I think it was one of the guys, Wesley or one of those guys, they said that he, pre- he, pre- he prayed 10 hours a day. Prayed 10 hours a day. And I, that impressed me. I was a young guy. I thought, wow, I'm going to pray 10 hours a day sometime. And then I got older, I thought to myself, how did that happen? He's preaching here, and then he gets on his horse, and he rides 80 miles to the next place. It takes him all day or two days to get there. How in the world does this guy find time to pray for 10 hours a day? And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. See, my idea was prayer that he was on his knees in a little closet someplace or he was over there with his head bowed in. No, no. He understood that the real concept of prayer was your communication with God 24-7. And when he's riding that horse wherever he's going to the next place he's preaching, he's talking to God. And you can get in your car in the morning and you can talk to God all the way to work. You can talk to God while you go in the office. You can ask God to kill the guy that just pulled out in front of you. You can talk to God about all kinds of stuff. And the bottom line is, you too can rack up at the end of the day five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours praying. One time there was an old evangelist, and he had come to town. And he was preaching, and the town was getting saved, and everybody that was corrupt was getting put out of business. So they decided to run him out of town, and they wanted to get some dirt on him. And so they put a guy in his hotel room, and the guy was in the closet, and he thought that I'll get some dirt on him, you know, when nobody's looking, and then we'll ruin him and we'll get him out of town. So after the service, you know, the old boy comes in there, and the guy's in the closet with just a creek back there listening very carefully. And the old man, he gets there, puts his pajamas on, you know, and he gets ready for bed. There's a little candle there by the bed, and the guy's watching, and he says, oh, we're going to get something on him here. And about that time, the, the old man sits on the bed and reads his Bible for about five or six minutes closes his Bible and puts it on a nightstand, rolls over in bed, blows out the candle, and the guy in the bedroom says, I got him. This guy doesn't pray before he goes to bed. Just about that time, I heard the old man say, good night, Father. It's been good talking to you all day today. It's been good talking to you all day today. I'm going to tell you something. Your prayer life 
isn't based on where you're at, the position of your body. It's dealing on the attitude of your heart, the position of your heart with God and your bountiful eye. And I'll tell you what, he didn't, he didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't pray at all. Now, I want to tell you something, and, and this goes contrary to everything that you hear. So listen carefully so you hear it right. One of the evidence that a man has the real relationship with the Holy Spirit of God is not the fact that he prays about everything, but he only prays about those things that need to be prayed about because him and the Holy Spirit of God are working through the rest on a daily basis, minute by minute. We've all known preachers <laughs> who pray about everything. I knew a guy one time, but I ain't kidding you. Whatever you said to him, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pray. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. I know that prayer is the bedrock of the Christian faith. I get it. We got a lesson on it in discipleship. It's one of the seven pieces of armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. I understand it. I will never take away from the importance of the prayer life in your life, but it better be the right kind of prayer life. Because prayer can be a mystic thing, can't it? Prayer can be a big rock that you hide behind, like, look at me how spiritual I am. And your eye is full of darkness, but you want to put everybody, pretend that you're really spiritual. So prayer is, is the big thing. Well, we, I, I've known Christians like this all my life. And I, this guy, he prayed about everything. I don't care. I would say to him, you know, why don't you, why don't you try this? He's having an issue. I said, why don't you try that? Well, brother, I'll, I'll have to pray about that. I'm thinking to myself, what is there to pray about? I always wanted to get one of those guys in a car with me on a long trip that I was driving. Get him about five or six cups of coffee. And then driving there about two hours, and he'd read over to me and say, Hey, Bob, what, could we stop? I need to go to the restroom. And I'd say, I'll pray about it. <laughs> two hours later, man, I really got to go. I'm still praying about it. <laughs> you know, Gideon, he's a hero to a lot of people. And I, and I preached a message before, too. But to me, Gideon is a classic example of what you have today uh, in most of Christianity. Bible says that Gideon was a, was a man of valor. He, he, and God used him uh, to defeat the, the Midianites. And you know the story of Gideon's 300. We use it in Sunday school. It's a great message to preach, you know, lamp pictures and all that stuff. I get it. But I always, Gideon was never really a champion of mine. When I got a little bit more into the Bible and I read the story of Gideon, over there in Judges chapter 6, verse 36 through 40, God came down and told Gideon that he was going to deliver him and going to whip the enemy through his hand. He told him directly. And so Gideon goes back and he's, he says, well, and then he starts to pray. And he says, well, you know what, Lord? I, I know what you said. But I just don't know if that's true or not. And boy, I'll tell you what, I, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to take a fleece, a lamb skin, and I'm going to put it out in the grass. And the dew will come down tonight and all the grass will get wet. And if that lamb skin doesn't get wet, then I'll know that that's what you really meant when you told me that. So he gets up the next morning, poof, things dry, water all around it. He picks it up and he says, ah, praise the Lord. Oh, dear God. Do it one more time. So he puts it out that night. Sure enough, water all around the thing. Thing dry as a bone. I always looked at that and I thought to myself, why did he have to pray two times for a sign from God when the very word of God told him what God was going to do? 
You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of God telling you something through that book or in your life with the Holy Spirit of God, and you can't believe it, so you've got to ask God for some sign. You've got to pray about something. God, show me this. God, give me that. When He's already given to you in the book what He's going to do. The real mark of a spiritual relationship with God is not how much you pray, it's how little you pray about the right things. Philip has a bountiful eye, and it's, it's based on the fact of what he sees and what God is doing. And when you and I develop that mindset of seeing the opportunities that God puts before us, and then you and I will also have that spiritual discernment, that spiritual insight. You also now will become the right man in the right place at the right time. And you'll never miss an opportunity that he puts in your place. Because you're always looking around. Why are you looking around? You're looking through the blessings of the bountifulness that God has done in your world. There's no room for the dark things in your life. So, you see this is, is a really good verse. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. Now, it's been said that the Christian life is just four things. If we would take everything in the Christian world in our lives and we want to boil it down into just four simple, basic concepts, it would be these four things. And this is what I try to do here. I heard this years and years and years and years and years ago by somebody who was a lot smarter in the Bible than I was. And he says, you know, the Christian life of being successful with God and being everything that God wants us to be is just four simple things. And if you and I can master these four simple things in our lives, everything else will take care of itself. He said, the first thing we all have to do is we have to believe the infallible. In other words, you have to have the Word of God. You have to believe it's the Word of God. You have to believe it powerful of God. And you have to believe that it has everything in it that you need. He just says the second thing, once you get the book and you believe that the Word of God and you believe the infallible, he says that book will give you the ability to hear the inaudible. Now you'll begin to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God like Philip. Now he'll begin to speak to you directly. Now all this goofy stuff about you being a great prayer warrior and a great prayer pillar goes out the window because... When you have the Holy Spirit of God in your life speaking you directly because you believe in the infallible and you're hearing the inaudible and you're doing what God wants you to do, very clear. He says, once you believe the infallible and once you hear the inaudible, then through that book, God will give you the ability to see the invisible. You'll start to see what nobody else sees. You'll start to see the phoniness in Christianity. You'll start to see the phoniness in this, the realness of this. You'll get that discernment, honey that we talked about. You'll be able to see any circumstances and you'll see it not as it appears, but as it really is. You'll be able to know when somebody wants to tell you how spiritual you are, you see how frail and weak they really are. And he said, if you believe the infallible, which will lead to you hearing the, uh, the inaudible, which will lead as you build a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God and you get God's vision, that you'll see the invisible, then God through a bountiful eye and the opportunities of an open door will take the Believe in the infallible, the hearing of the inaudible, the seeing the invisible, and you'll do the impossible. That's exactly what Christianity is, or what it should be. You getting into that book and making that book 
your life. You get the sin out of your life, the darkness out of your eye, and your singleness of eye. You don't have one eye in the world in sin and one eye, and you're going to pretend that you've got the great keys to all the spiritual things in life. Give me a break. You believe the infallible, which will lead to you hearing the inaudible, which will lead you to seeing what's invisible, what nobody else can see. And God will take you, and through the opportunities He puts in your life, you'll do the impossible. A bountiful life of giving of that bread to others by what God has given to you. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about Abraham. And we all know the story of Abraham and how he went through a lot of things, but he wound up being the friend of God. He wound up being the friend of God for one reason, and that's given to you in Romans 4, 17. Because Abraham had the ability, like God, to call it those things that are not as though they were. He could see wasn't there yet. You know what I see in you? I see you on all different levels. I never look at you with your problems. I never looked at you where you've come from with your problems. I only look at you and see you where you're at right now with the potential God has for you. My job is to take that potential and make you the very best that God, for, you, for God that you can be. That's all I care about. That's all I want. I don't want your money. don't want your car. don't want your house. don't want your dog. All I want is for you as a saved person to be everything that God wants you to be. And I see that potential in you. That's why I got so excited about watching all you young guys and gals take prayer groups. That's the next level up. That's exactly. Now you're going to start giving of your bread. And I love the older ones. The older ones stepped down and they said, I'm not going to take one this time. I want somebody new to step up and I'll be there to help them. That's what we do. On whatever level you are. Calleth those things which are not as though they were. Will you ever get there in your life? Will you ever see the situation that just beats you up one side and down the other because you see it as it appears and you don't have the spiritual discernment to see it as it really is? Over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, I talked about Moses. What a great guy he is. You know, Moses had a tough time believing what God wanted him to do. When Moses went before God and God told him, uh, what he wanted to do, uh, um, uh, and, and Moses says, well, you know what, I, 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 I don't know if I can do that. I don't speak very well, I don't do all these things. And I heard old Mel Sabaka preach a message one time, and I've used the phrase many, many times. He says that when Moses went before God, Moses put out the God that Moses kept saying, Lord, uh, I'm not able to do this, I'm not able to do this, I'm not able to do this. And old Mel used to preach, you know what, Moses, it isn't, about, it isn't about whether you're able or not. It's about are you willing. Because if you're willing to do what God wants you to do, God is able to give you the ability to do it. God looks down at Moses and he says, you can't do any of this stuff? No, I really can't. Just like some of you. Just like some of you when we had conversations in time past where you say, well, Bob, I'm scared to death to do this. I don't know if I can do that. Boy, take a prayer group. Man, I don't know. Or disciple somebody. I don't, I don't. Moses was there. You know, he, he, God's speaking to him out of the burning bush and said, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And Moses says, I don't think I can do that. I don't know if I can do that. I, you know, and he looks down at God. You know what God said? He says, Moses, I'll tell you how we're going to do it. What do you got in your hand? He said, I got a rod. He said, then we'll just start and use that. You know that all through his ministry to Egypt, he just used the rod in his hand that God gave him. He did the great miracles with it. He took, turned the waters to blood. He did everything with that rod in his hand. God will start with you with whatever you got in your hand right now that you're willing to give to him. And he'll do everything for you. 
It doesn't matter how able you are. None of us are able. It is, are you willing? And through the willingness, you get the bountiful eye. Then you walk through your Christian life seeing every opportunity. You're talking to the Holy Spirit of God all the time. Pray without ceasing. Uh, you're, walking, uh, you're just walking there and talk, saying, Lord, I'll just tell you, thank you for that, Lord. Well, praise the Lord. Yep, okay, Lord, you know I'm going into this situation. And you, and you see, we get the idea, real spiritual Christian, but that's not real prayer. No, your type of prayer isn't real prayer. The real prayer is you and Todd just talking like your friend. Wasn't it Moses that said that he talked to God face to face like man speaking to his friend? But see, that's not ooh, mystic. God just wants to have a conversation with you all day long. Holy Spirit of God wants to say, go join that man, go join yourself to that man's chariot. You know what he wants you to do? He wants you to run. He doesn't want you to pray about it. He wants you to run. He wants you to already be in touch with the Holy Spirit of God. You and God know exactly what your day is today, where you're going, what you're going to do, and how you're going to get it done. He wants to put you in the right place at the right time and be the right man. And the Holy Spirit of God is the one who's going to get you there. It's an incredible verse. Singleness of eye. The concept of a bountiful eye. Our ability to see and discern and have that spiritual insight through your own personal, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, praying without ceasing, 100% total commitment to praying in every situation you're in, following the principles of the Word of God and letting the Holy Spirit of God line them all up for you that's Christianity. We'll hold up there.